0: Well, if we're honest, this is the part of the Christmas story that if you or I were writing it, we probably wouldn't have included it. Any self-respecting spin doctor would say to anybody writing the Christmas story, no, just leave that bit out. Just redact that part of the story. Just omit it because it has some deep, uncomfortable truths that we're not really happy with at Christmas, And if we're honest, in the 21st century, again, it does not form part of our Christmas story. Stars and shepherds and wise men and mangers, we can cope with those. But infanticide, children under the age of two being put to death by kill squads, political intrigue at the heart of the Middle East, that doesn't seem to fit with the Christmas card picture of what that first Christmas was all about. Babies are supposed to be worshipped. Babies are supposed to be sung about. Babies at Christmas are supposed to be rocked in cradles, not the victims of infanticide. And yet also, at a strange level, it reassures us. Because if this is part of the Christmas story, it reminds us that the world that Jesus came into was a world just like our world. It was not the soft focus world of the make-believe, Radio Times, Victorian card Christmas. It's a world of political intrigue. It's a world of fragility. It's a world of cruelty. It's a world where children die. It's a world where strange deaths occur. It's a a world where political leaders are insecure and the futures of nations can hang on a thread. It's a world of Aleppo and Mosul. It's the world of refugees and President Trump and Brexit and all that we've seen in the last 12 months. It's the same world. It's the world that you live in. It's the world that I live in. It's the world that Jesus came to live in. I remember talking to a Christian from Africa about 15 years ago in this church, and he'd been studying in the UK for three or four years doing a PhD, and it was on this particular Sunday 15 years ago that he came to have a chat with me after the service, and he said one thing really troubles me about Christmas in the UK. I thought, only one? He said, you never tell the story about the slaughter of the innocents. And I thought, he was right. He said, in Africa, we tell that story every year to remind us what happened that first Christmas. In Africa, suffering is part of our lives, and so this story reminds us of what Christmas is really about. And that's why every Christmas since, in the last 15 years, in this church, we have looked at this particular passage was hearing last week of one American church leader, Nadia boltz Weber, who helpfully pointed out that this story essentially focuses on two men and their very different reactions. One is Herod and one is Joseph, the father of Jesus. Let's look first at Herod. Perhaps Herod is a shady figure. Herod is a complex figure. Described as Herod the Great by now The time that Jesus was born, Herod is about 70 years of age. Somehow, he has held onto his throne for 40 years, no mean feat in the ancient world. The history of Israel had been one of successive coups and invasions and wars. The Syrians and Babylonians and Persians had all marched through and over the Promised Land. Military leaders like Exalander the Great and Antiochus IV had come and gone And now the Romans had arrived and put down the rebellion and installed Herod as their king of the Jews. Herod himself was a complicated person, apart from being the part in the nativity play that nobody wants to be. They'd much rather be third camel or second shepherd than King Herod. Herod racially was an Arab. Religiously, he was Jewish. Culturally, he was Greek. Herod is a Greek name and apparently Greek was his first language. He'd even tried to turn the city of Jerusalem into a sort of Greek citadel. But politically he was neither Jewish nor Arab nor Greek, he was Roman. He'd been very close to the Romans and that's why for most of his career he'd been able to hang on to his throne He was very close to them and had chosen, however, the losing side in the Roman civil war between Antony and Octavian. He'd been a personal friend, apparently, of Mark Antony. who would lost the war to Octavian and who became Caesar Augustus, that was told about in Luke's Gospel. And therefore Herod had been forced to go to Rome and plead with the new emperor to be allowed to keep his throne. Herod said, trust me, I can look after the Jews. Trust me, I can look after Jerusalem. Trust me, I can keep the income flowing in from Israel into the Roman Empire. And Caesar Augustus had said, okay, you've got a reputation, you've got power, I will trust you. And he entrusted the throne to Herod. We tend to think of him because of how he comes across in the Christmas story as a weak and old and corrupt ruler. And by this time perhaps he was. But earlier in his life, in his prime, apparently he'd been good looking, powerfully built and had personally led his army in ten different wars. He was a visionary leader He built some incredible uh, cities and structures. Indeed, the the ruins of the temple in Jerusalem that are there today, they are the ruins that Herod had built during his time when he was king. However, by the time that we pick up the story now, the time when Jesus is born, things are beginning to unravel for Herod. Herod had married ten women in all and killed most of them. He made Herod the look like a pin-up boy uh, for marriage. Uh, personally he killed his favourite wife, Mariam, her mother Alexandra, and three of his sons. Herod was so insecure and so frightened that either one of his sons or his wife or his mother in law was a threat to his power that he simply had them executed. He had over half of the Sanhedrin executed and 300 of his courtiers killed as well. And he even planned a mass genocide on the occasion of his death. He sent orders out to his troops that when he was nearing death, they should arrest thousands of leading citizens in Israel, bring them to a stadium in Jericho, And when news of the the, the king's death arrived, all these thousands were to be slaughtered in the stadium so that there really would be crying and weeping and mourning in the land of Israel. He was that paranoid that he wouldn't be grieved after he died, that he wanted to ensure that people were slaughtered in order that people really did weep and were sad when he died, even though it wasn't his death that they were going to be mourning. Thankfully, that order was never carried out. And so we see in Herod somebody with incredible power, but also somebody who is incredibly afraid. Somebody of incredible influence and position, but somebody who is also incredibly insecure. After all, when the wise men arrive, he's spooked by a horoscope and a newborn baby. That's how insecure he is. A horoscope and a newborn baby throw the king of the Jews into panic. He tells the Magi to go to Bethlehem, find the baby and come back, quote, so that I may go and worship him. Probably the word worship is in inverted commas. He meant only one thing for that baby. That baby had to be put to death because this baby, it was purported, was the king of the Jews. But Herod was the king of the Jews. God tells the Magi in a dream what Herod is up to. They don't go back to Jerusalem. Herod finds out that he's been duped, and he sends the kill squads into Bethlehem. Now, it's known as the slaughter of the innocents. Any slaughter of any innocent children is a tragedy. It wasn't probably the numbers that might come to our mind. It was 20 or 30. Bethlehem wasn't a large place. We hear of it referred to as a city, but really it was a village. Of course, to those 20 or 30 mums, the death of their children was a tragedy. But Herod is so insecure, so frightened, so full of fear, that he's spooked. Spooked by a horoscope and spooked by an infant. See, that's what fear does. Fear makes us act and respond irrationally. Fear does something to us as human beings. It leads to things getting out of proportion and perspective. How many of us haven't woken at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning gripped by fear? As we sleep, something from our subconscious surfaces. And so in the middle of the night, we wake up literally in a cold sweat. And at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, that fear grips us. And that fear seems enormous. And that person, or that situation, or that relationship, or that prospect, seems just enormous. And it cripples us. And it leads to irrational thoughts at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. Never make any decisions at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. They are never good ones. Because what's happening is that fear makes us think differently. Fear makes the problem seem enormous and ourselves seem very small. In Boltz-Weber's words, fear keeps us isolated, small, and steals away possibility. Fear keeps us isolated, small, and steals away possibility. Maybe you've had that experience. You've woken up in the middle of the night, and something is at the forefront of your mind, and you can't get back to sleep. And you dwell on it, and you think on it, and it goes over and over. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this occurs? What if they say this? What if they say that? What happens about that? What happens about this? What happens about this? I think it was Mark Twain who said he had worried most of his life about things, 90% of which had never happened. But that's who we are as human beings. We worry. And in our state of anxiety, fear makes the thing bigger. And something also happens at the same time. Fear not only makes the thing that we're worried about bigger, it reduces God in our understanding. Fear reduces our vision of who God is and what God can do fear makes us think differently about ourselves it makes us think differently perhaps about other people so it causes us to think less of God less of ourselves perhaps less or more of other people reality fades into the background when our imagination takes over and fear grips us fear reduces God and makes the problem, the situation, bigger in our thinking. Contrast that with Joseph. Joseph has been getting used to being warned in dreams by God. He's getting used now to the fact that God speaks to him in dreams. It was no easy task to accept this baby that he had not biologically fathered as his own, to take Mary as his wife with all the rumours and all the gossip and all the speculation that went with all that in a small town called Nazareth. It had taken an enormous amount of courage and above all trust in God to say yes I will marry Joseph at Mary and I will father this child as my own. It perhaps had been a relief to get away to Bethlehem and get away from the gossip and get away from the speculation. But now the baby was born, and what were they to do now? And then God appears again to Joseph in a dream, warns uh, Joseph what Herod is up to, and tells Joseph to take the baby and Mary to Egypt. Seems very simple. One sentence. To take. The baby and to take Mary to Egypt but think about the context think about Joseph's history think about who Joseph was Joseph was a Jew Egypt meant only one thing Egypt meant the land where his ancestors had been slaves Egypt meant the place where God had delivered his people from slavery Egypt was a place where God didn't work, apart from rescue and redemption, getting the people of Israel out of Egypt. Now God tells Joseph to take Israel's Messiah, to take the world's Messiah, to the last place on earth that any self-respecting Jew would have taken Israel's Messiah to, Egypt. It's like a sort of reverse exodus as God tells Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. Egypt, the place that was synonymous with slavery. Egypt, the place that was synonymous where you had to be rescued from, where it only meant bad news. And yet Joseph decides to trust Joseph decides to take Mary and Joseph to Egypt. Joseph decides to put his faith in God and to go to Egypt with Mary and with Jesus. Joseph decides to put his trust in God, to not be afraid, and to recognize that God can work anywhere, even in Egypt, even in the place that was associated with slavery. And as he starts to do that, Joseph starts to look at the past in a different way. And Joseph starts to look at the present in a different way. And Joseph starts to look at the future in a different way. Because he's deliberately deciding to trust God and not to give in to fear. Not to give in to the fear of what Herod might do. Not to give in to the fear of what might happen in Egypt. Not give in to the fear of what might happen when they arrive in Egypt. He decides to trust God and not give in to his fear. And what casts out fear? Well, elsewhere in the Bible we're told that it's perfect love that casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. And maybe as Joseph looked into the face of his infant son, he saw... Perfect love. He saw perfect love in the face of this baby, this baby who would grow up, this baby who would teach the most incredible truths, this baby who, as an adult, would do the most amazing things, this baby who would reveal God in human form. And he saw in the face of this baby perfect love. And perfect love casts out fear. Just before Christmas, I was at a meeting where Ellie Mumford, who with her husband, John, used to lead the vineyard churches in the UK, was sharing a story that happened last summer. Um, For those of you who are under the age of 35, you won't need reminding that uh, John and Ellie Mumford's sons are more famous than John and Ellie Mumford. Uh, They head up the band Mumford & Sons. And they'd been asked to uh, perform at a concert in Hyde Park and this was just two days after the Brexit result had been announced. Now, Marcus Mumford, who's the lead singer, um, wanted or just felt that he should say something to the crowd. The crowd at Hyde Park was about 95,000 people. And coming two days after the uh, Brexit result, Mumford felt that he should say something. Now, faith-wise, he's had an interesting journey. Uh, You can't listen to any Mumford & Sons album without at some point hearing some reference to faith and some reference to love and some reference to being a prodigal and some reference to grace. It's an interesting journey to listen to Mumford & Sons' collection apart from the swear words. He doesn't go to church, but at this point Ellie Mumford said that she was struck by what Marcus Mumford stood up and said. Halfway through the set, he just waited on the stage and and the the crowd just fell silent. And Ellie Mumford said she was so proud as a mum that Marcus stood there and said this phrase three times. We will not be afraid. We will not be afraid. We will not be afraid. Now it's interesting, you can take... The boy out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the boy. Where had he heard that phrase? He'd heard that phrase in every Bible reading that referenced an angel appearing to human beings. Because every time angels appear to human beings, we know that they're taught in heaven to say, the first thing in the angel's manual is when you appear to a human being, your opening phrase has to be, do not be afraid. And so every time the angels appear in human form or whatever to human beings, their opening line is, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. But it's not like some magical mantra, a spell that's cast over us. It involves a response. It involves a decision from us as human beings. Where God might remind us or might reassure us not to be afraid, but the choice is still ours whether we will be. I want you to think of a situation that you are facing at the moment. Perhaps that's making you afraid. It might be in a relationship. It might be in that dreaded return to work. Although as a colleague of Libby's, I was slightly worried that that's what she was talking about for herself tomorrow it might be a relationship it might be your boss it might be something that you're fearful of in the future it might be a health diagnosis it might be something in your family it might be the fear of loneliness it might be the fear of unemployment It might be a fear for a child or a grandchild. It might be a fear of illness or even death. But the reality is that most of us in this room will be facing situations or people of which we are tempted to be afraid. Situations or people or circumstances that may well be leading at the moment to us waking up at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning and if it's not happening now it will happen at some point in the future as it sure has happened at some point in the past and I want you just to hold that memory to hold that situation to hold that circumstance and just sit with it for a few minutes And begin to think why you're frightened. And why is holding that hold over you? Why it leads to an almost physical incapacity to be able to do anything. Because that's what fear does. Fear grips people. And it holds us. Why does that thing, that person, that situation, that circumstance seem so big... And is it really as big as you think it is? And then in a few moments I want to lead us in prayer as we give those situations to God. But just before we do that I want to get Kieran uh, up. Kieran if you want to come and join me. One of the privileges that we have uh, in this church is uh, having people on the staff of the church and then saying goodbye to them. And uh, Kieran was on the staff of uh, P's and G's uh, for about eight or nine years? Seven. Seven. It just seems longer. (laughs) Kieran was our youth director, and um, it was our great privilege, it really was, to be able to send Kieran out as a mission partner now. And uh, Kieran has... uh, Tell people who don't know you what you've been doing for the past few years. Uh,
1: The last five years I've been with an NGO doing humanitarian work, in uh, Somalia, then Afghanistan, and then Iraq. and I just finished five years with them, so that's come to an end. Which has been a great adventure, um, with lots of fear along the way. Um, and I'm about to transition into a new NGO, a new, new contract, so.
0: So, nice easy places. Yeah. Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan. Not necessarily in that order. You're about to go uh, back to Iraq. What are you going to be doing and who are you going to be working for?
1: So, I'm, I feel like I'm switching football teams to different colours. I'm going to Tier Fund, which is green and yellow, whereas Medea was red and white. Um, so, I'm going to be with Tier Fund, but covering the whole of the Middle East. So, covering Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan. Um, so, based in Iraq, but travelling, travelling around. So, uh, a bigger, bigger role, bigger responsibility, uh, bigger challenge, but I'm ready for it, so... I'm excited. And I've, I've known Tearfund for years, partly as here as a youth worker. And then obviously in the field, we're good friends with a lot of the Tearfund team. So I'm kind of excited to go with them and I've always respected them. So it's a, uh, it'll be interesting, different. And
0: fearful? What are you fearful of as you go into this new role?
1: Mm, there's so many, as you were talking, I was sitting there thinking there's so many things. Uh, fear within the context of where I work, the fear of the the people that we're working with, what they're fearing in the conflicts that they're living in, um, the fear of our staff and them doing their job, but trying to do their job without being threatened. And then for me, it's my fear is I'm making decisions about where people are going, which projects we're going to, which locations we're going to. If I get it wrong, uh, people can die. If I get it wrong, people won't get the care that they need. Um, So sleepless nights are those things thinking tomorrow, I'm sending a team there, is this the right move, is this the right move? Maybe I've made a big mistake and I go back and forth and back and forth. Um, And also people's jobs, the people we employ, if I I get it wrong and I don't get the right funding, I don't get it in the right place, people lose their jobs and those people are maybe providing for 20 people. Uh, And if we don't get the funding, the project ends, can't keep you employed, that's bad for you, it would be bad for me if I lost my job, but I can go get another one. They might not get another one, their entire family then loses out. So that kind of responsibility is a constant, constant fear.
0: So how how do you cope with that? I mean, you've had some of that in Medair already. Mm. You've worked in some fairly scary places. You're going back to work in a scary place. It's a place that is on the news headlines here most weeks. How do
1: you cope with that as a person
0: and as a Christian?
1: I think, as a person, I mean, we have a lot of information and a lot, and you develop skills. And I think somehow, I somebody asked, "How did God lead me into this?" And I thought, I have no idea, but somehow I ended up with these skills of working in conflict zones. Because um, you'd worked here, that was yeah, the... maybe that was it. <laughs> I learned a lot from working under you. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, and so, there's those kind of those skills that are professional skills that you pick up on, and hopefully you make the right decisions. But I always think that. We pray together as a team, the the Christians, the expats in the team do, uh, a couple of times a week usually. And every time we say, what are we going to pray for? We'll pray for the projects, but always security, always the safety. And it's usually not praying for ourselves, we're praying for our national staff. And and to know that you can always do that, and that you're not, for me as the leader, I'm not totally carrying that, I'm not carrying that burden myself. You know, God is there to pick me up and to, to take me through. And I don't know how sometimes I get through. I don't know how I make these decisions. Sometimes it is intuitive. And I think that's called prompting, pushing, uh, you know, make a bolt. I think, yeah, we should go to that place. We should really go to that place. And sometimes the logic is not quite there. But I feel like, no, we need to go there. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's the, the fact that we can go to God about these big decisions and constantly, and I think about all the secular NGOs who are also working in the same places and doing similar work, but they don't have that. They're, they are on their own. Those decision-makers are on their own. Um, and What an incredible thing that we have is that we can rely on God and pray to him and lift our worries, our fears to him, and we're not doing it on our own. Um, so yeah.
0: It's an obvious question. How can we pray for you as you prepare to, to go back?
1: Yeah, I think um, joining a new organization, new team, uh, getting used to that. There's things about Tearfront. I think, oh, is that quite in my thinking? Um, but there's loads of things I'm going to learn through them, things that, that I haven't done with meta that I'm excited about. So just getting into a new organization, fitting in, fitting in with a team. Um, but then really going forward, the next couple of years in the Middle East, I mean, it's been fascinating. The last five years, it's going to continue. Um, with Turkey and Russia and Iran and with Trump now president and Brexit, all these things impact on the Middle East. Unlike other conflict zones where really it's what's happening in that country, in the Middle East, the whole world politics is impacting on everything. Um, and there's, in my role being very much the strategist, looking at where we're going, what we're going to do next, trying to predict is really difficult. So wisdom in that. And, um, knowing how to carry the team through and to to make wise decisions and to to discern um, what the right things are to do.
0: Well, it is genuinely our privilege to stand with you um, and pray for you. Um, So let's pray together, shall we, for for Kieran? Father, we thank you for Kieran. Thank you for what he means to so many people here. Thank you for his time on the church staff here. Thank you for all that he gave to lives of young people uh, in this place and beyond and we simply want to commit and commend him again to you as he enters into this new phase of life, as he joins Tier Fund, as he looks to head up a new team, uh, become familiar with a different organization, a different culture and a different way of doing things, uh, to build new relationships and new friendships um, with colleagues and with other people in the UK but also in the Middle East. Father, we want to pray for great wisdom. Holy Spirit, would you fill him with a spirit of understanding and wisdom and discernment and counsel. May you surprise him with the clarity with which you speak when he comes to you and asks for guidance and help. But we also want to pray, Father, not just for wisdom, but also for protection. We pray, Father, for physical protection. We pray that you would keep him and his team safe as they do the work that they have to do in the region that you've placed them. Pray for strategic alliances with other NGOs and with governments, both in the Middle East and here in the West. We pray for friendships, And above all, Father, we pray as he goes back out into the field for friendships that he can be himself with, friendships that will feed him and encourage and support him, friendships that will make him laugh, friendships that he can share tears with, friendships that he can be himself with. And would you reassure him above all, of your call, of your plan, of your purpose, and of your love for him. And in those times, Lord, when he's tempted quite naturally to be fearful, then, Father, we pray that supernaturally your Holy Spirit would cast out that fear, that he might know how loved he is by you And how loved he is by people in this country, including this church. But above all, that as he thinks about the height and depth and breadth and width of your love, that your perfect love would cast out fear. So Father, we simply want to say that we love him, we thank you for him, and we pray that you would go ahead of him, behind him, at his left and his right hand. In Jesus' name. Amen.